Karen Middleton is Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper, based in Canberra. Uh, shocking and sudden, and no one saw it coming, uh, the events of the Middle East of the last couple of days. And what's the political response and beyond in Australia, please, Karen? Oh, morning, Catherine. Yeah, this is just appalling, isn't it, watching the events in the Middle East? And uh, tensions are high here in Australia as a result. We have seen the government government officials come out um, in support of Israel and we saw a decision taken uh, a couple of nights ago to light up um, public buildings in blue and white, in the blue and white colours of the Israeli flag in support, including the sales of the Opera House. This has been a thing that governments have done in recent years on when major events, bad or good, occur, um, that, and they make a statement of that kind. As a result of that, there was a pro-Palestinian demonstration uh, that marched from the Sydney Town Hall to the Opera House, um, and people began shouting all kinds of anti-Israeli and anti-Jewish epithets, which um, it, it horrified some people, frankly. Uh, there were some at the protest who were trying to stop that from happening, but it's the images of it have gone around the world and now, you know, it looks very, very bad for, for Australia to be um, having protests like this. It's understandable that the Palestinian people are protesting, of course, about what is now occurring in Gaza um, after what Hamas, the horrific things that Hamas did in Israel. But uh, we now see these tensions playing out on the Australian streets, which is a, is a, is a concern, yeah, of course. So beyond uh, a condemnation of the action and, a, and a, you know, sort of a statement of support for Israel, has your Prime Minister said anything else? Well, he's he's uh, in, he says he's in dialogue, obviously, with counterparts. Uh, there hasn't been a formal request from Israel for support. He's under pressure from the opposition that he's seeing a political opportunity here because this is an issue, and we know that the peace in the Middle East is a long-standing fraught issue, and this is an issue that's been a difficult issue for the Labor Party uh, well before these events of recent days, uh, there's been tension inside the Federal Labor Party over whether there should be support for the Palestinians or support for Israel. Um, certainly there's public support for Israel, no question. Um, but I think the opposition is seeing an opportunity to put some pressure on the Prime Minister and they're accusing him of not doing enough, of, of being too soft in its rhetoric. <clears throat> Pardon me, former Prime Minister John Howard has, has come out now and said that there should be greater condemnation of that protest I just mentioned. So we are seeing some sort of domestic political uh, pressure and fallout over this now as well. Now, the referendum nears, uh, and I saw a statistic somewhere that every day that passes equals a percentage vote towards no. It's been a really long, and, and it appears, you know, difficult debate, shall we say, with a, a, a lot of interference running. Um, and, and, you know, that happens, right? That people will organise around their uh, perspectives and they will promote their perspectives how would you describe the run-up to a referendum now just three days away on The Voice? Oh, I think there's a lot of anxiety on all sides now and, um, you know, so there's tension over this issue as well. Uh, it's become highly politicised. As soon as the opposition decided that it was voting no, it, it became a sort of a political contest as well as just a, a question of policy and the future. Um, all the published opinion polls suggest that no is likely 
to win. Uh, we have this double test that has to be passed for yes to win. That is that a, ma a majority right across the country, a, a majority of the population, voting population, and a majority in at least four of the six states. And the, I think I've said before, the two territories where I live in the Australian Capital Territory and the Northern Territory don't count because they're not officially states and they're not recognised as such in the Constitution. So they are the tests that have to be met, which is extremely difficult. Historically, uh, we've hardly, you know, I think eight out of 40 plus referenda uh, have succeeded. So it's a hard ask anyway, but certainly when there's political division. The Prime Minister is now facing questions about whether he made the right decision to push this this hard whether it should have gone on for this long, all these questions. People are asking what will happen the day after if it's if it's no and, indeed, if it's yes. Um, he's very reluctant to engage in discussion about what happens if it's no. He is maintaining that he is, is an optimist and is going around the country in a frenzy, frankly, campaigning these last few days. And today and at the moment he's out at Uluru. It was quite an emotional moment yesterday. He went to Uluru, which, of course, was the, the site of the coming together of Indigenous people after a long uh, consultation process and then the, the drafting and releasing of the what's known as the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which contained three requests, the first of which was a voice to the parliament, uh, followed by um, a treaty subsequently and then a truth-telling process. And this is the first stage of that. And he sat, the Prime Minister sat in a circle with Indigenous women yesterday and they sang and presented him with a beautifully painted copy of the Uluru statement and he was quite emotional and teary and said that campaigning for this was the greatest honour of his life. So, you know, he's he's feeling it very personally and, and really trying to encourage Australians to think about this as a, uh, a vote for the future, as a, a unifying moment, as something that can be done to try and um, work against the disadvantage, the entrenched disadvantage of, of, of Indigenous people. But um, research that the Yes side have conducted since they started their formal campaign indicates that there's a solid percentage of people, almost half, who don't actually accept that Indigenous people in this country are disadvantaged. So they had a big task from the, from the outset and it's not clear that, that they've managed to succeed. But we'll see on Saturday when people cast their votes. Constitutionally, what would actually happen were it to be a Yes vote? What would the Indigenous voice to Parliament's be and, and where would it sit in your constitutional arrangements? So there's a form of words that would be inserted in the constitution just saying that there will be a body that shall be known as the, as the voice and that will offer um, advice and make representations. I haven't got the wording in front of me, I'm sorry, so otherwise I'd read it directly, but um, make representations to the parliament and the executive government. Now there's no obligation on the government over the, the day to accept those rec recommendations or representations, but it just, it would entrench um, Indigenous people, uh, they're able to give um, that kind of advice because historically we've seen bodies that were set up to do that come and go because incoming governments then just abolish them. And so there hasn't been a permanent presence for Indigenous people representing their interests. Um, it, it wouldn't contain all the detail of how it would work. There've been a multitude of processes with reports suggesting how that would be. The most prominent of them would be, it suggests that it would be a um, a body that would take representatives from a range of regional bodies around the country that they would elect and receive uh, local information and advice from local communities. They would then contribute members to a national body. And then there's a proposed legal structure, ethical structure, conflict of interest structure, 
around all of that. But that those details are to be finalised by the Parliament, which is what the S side is emphasising, that in fact the Parliament remains supreme here, that those details can be changed in the future, but the Parliament continues to have the authority and that the, this body, is, it, is just, it is just enshrining the existence of this body. Yeah. That the Parliament shall, to subject to this Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. Okay. Yeah, and that's been a point of discussion too. It's about issues that are directly affect Indigenous yeah. people, so not you know not broader issues. Yes. Now the president and the paper baron—that always sounds like the start of a great yarn. Yeah, indeed. Well, it is. It's sort of bizarre. This is about um, an issue emerged out of the United States that former President Donald Trump is alleged to have revealed secrets about uh, the U.S nuclear uh, submarine technology to Australian paper and packaging uh, mogul Anthony Pratt. Now, this is said to have occurred soon after the 2020 election that uh, President Trump lost uh, early into 2021. Not not shown documents. We've heard some suggestions that the president has had documents he shouldn't have had. This is about conversations where he was said to have imparted details like exactly how many nuclear warheads are carried on nuclear submarines or how close they can get to Russian submarines or other submarines without being detected. And this, of course, is protected information. And now Anthony Pratt is at the, sub, is a, at the heart of this investigation into whether the president has uh, divulged classified information that he shouldn't have. He's been, inter- been interviewed. Um, it's alleged, as I say, that he was told this verbally and that he then went on to tell at least 45 other people, we're told, including three former prime ministers, six journalists, 11 employees and 10 officials. Um, and we don't know what then became of the information and there's no suggestion that he did this. You know, he was knowingly sharing classified information. He'd been told something and he's allegedly passed it on. But it's now put this Mr Pratt right at the heart of these investigations and we know that the president, the former president, is subject to a range of legal proceedings in the United States on a range of issues, one of which is his handling of classified information. So he's a potential witness. Could he be subpoenaed? Can you do that across jurisdictions? Well, that's the interesting question. He's obviously agreed to be interviewed. I don't know under US law whether he could be subpoenaed, but uh, I don't know whether the jurisdictional question comes into play, but you would think they would be fairly keen to hear from him directly should they need to any further. Well, we've got our moment of truth coming on Sunday morning, Karen. Uh, and Fiji, well, Portugal nearly gave Australia, nearly gave the Wallabies a little escape route back in, but not to be. Uh, so oh, the soul searching officially underway, yeah? It is, yeah. Well, we talked about this before. This is all about the Rugby World Cup. Um, the Wallabies were sort of praying for the un- unimaginable to happen, that, that a Portugal victory, uh, that Portugal, Portugal could have a victory over Fiji and that, that it, the Wallabies could somehow stay in the competition. And then, hey, presto, it actually did happen. But because it was by a single point, um, Fiji picked up one extra point because they lost by less than eight points. Now, this is beyond my level of understanding of all this. Uh, and it it la- allowed them to be equal to Australia in the rankings. They referred back to the previous contest between the two. Fiji had won that, and so that puts them ahead of Australia, and we are out officially. And, yes, a hand-wringing goes on about the future of the Wallabies. You're bang on with the rules, and rule number one is don't lose. Don't lose games that you weren't expected to lose. Um I don't even know. It's funny, the debate here ahead of Sunday is whether the 
whether the All Blacks are expected to win. There's a bit of a sweet state going around our office at the moment. Most of us are leaning towards Ireland as the likely winner. I'm picking a close match with an Irish win. But well, uh, I, another colleague wants the, the All Blacks, Blacks to go crazy in the first half and then hold on. So let's just see what unfolds. But we might be joining you with the beers and the tears on Monday.